0: So, um, go ahead and put that slide up with. uh, There you go. We're starting a series. We do this, uh, it's called Gather, Grow, Go. We're doing this for three weeks. We've been doing this the last several years, right in the beginning of the fall. Actually, we haven't quite started fall, even though it kind of feels that way. Um, All six locations, Bethany locations, are doing this as a way of kind of looking at the three dimensions of the church's life. Each word kind of represents a unique thing or an integral part of who we're called to be and what we're called to be about. Um, so today we start with gather. And the question is why? Why are we here this morning? Why gather? Why did you get up and come to church today? And for many of you, you do this because that's frankly what you've always done. It's what you do on Sunday. You wake up, you go to church, it's your tradition. It's just how you were raised. It's what it means to be a good person, right? For others, just as many of us, it's where you experience growth, uh, healing, hope, community, friendship, intimacy. You're, you're like, you find support here in ways that you don't find support elsewhere in your lives, right? But if you were to ask those who are not here, and I'm not talking about the ones that couldn't make it today, that are part of a church or our church, but those who would never, as they say, dare to darken the door of a church, right? If you ask them why or why not, why, why, if you were to do this, like, why don't you go to church? You know what they'd say, right? As Paul says somewhere in one of his letters, it's foolishness, it's scandal, To put it in layman's terms, it's bass-ackwards. Like, Christianity is toxic. Um, there's so much toxicity in the church today that it would be better to sit in a traffic jam and inhale all the fumes there for like an hour than to gather with other Christians in a church on Sunday morning. They might say that. Anne Rice, who became famous... Um, Writing like these steamy gothic, very unChristian novels years ago. Interview with a vampire. How many of you have read that book? A few of you. Um, years ago, now on July twenty eighth of two thousand ten, she quit Christianity. <clears throat> I know only a couple people read it. Is that so sad? Poor Anne Rice. Let's have a moment of silence. <laughs> um, but she became she quit Christianity on, on July, uh, July of two thousand ten. She says via her Facebook page, she had enough. Here's what she said, literally. For those that care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not being a Christian or being part of Christianity. Um, it's simply impossible, she said, for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. And then she went on to say this. And this is Anne Rice, okay? Uh, In the name of Christ, I refuse to be anti-gay. I refuse to be anti-feminist. I refuse to be anti-artificial birth control. I refuse to be anti-democrat. I refuse to be anti-secular humanism. I refuse to be anti-science. I refuse to be anti-life. In the name of Christ, I quit being Christian. Amen. So in the midst of a world where Christianity is is increasingly being defined by what it's against, um, this is a profound and prophetic word, isn't it? So her voice is becoming this very common voice. It's no longer just shocking when people quit. I've... Had many friends quit the church over the years. I've had friends quit this church, not because we've done something horrific or toxic, but because, or we're anti anything per se. I mean, Bethany could never be accused of being almost anti anything. Um, but because of our, by association, we represent all that's wrong with the world today, right? And, and people I love, lovers of God, like, cannot, like Rice, in good conscience, associate with the church anymore. So what do we do about that? We're here. You came to church today. Like, should we continue to gather? like, sh- Or should we quit? Should we close the doors? I just proposed adding a service. Should we just like, eh? And that might be an alarming question to put to you as your pastor. Like, should we quit doing this? It seems unconscionable when you think about it, especially evangelical Christianity. Um, but it's the question that those that are not here are asking. Like, if you were to go to work tomorrow, why did you go to church yesterday, Adam? Like, why did you do that? That's weird. And uh, because I don't think the answer is to quit, Lala <laughs> and Rice, I think that's actually kind of a cop-out. Um, I've said this before, just like there are no perfect people this side of heaven, there's no perfect church. Like, there, we are not a perfect church. We are far from that. We're just a group of bro- broken people trying to understand what it looks like to live in response to God's grace. That's all church is, okay? So why do we gather That's what we're looking at this morning. And we have an opportunity this morning to explore why through the lens of this passage in 2 Corinthians, which answers some of those questions, kind of frames what this is all about, okay? Why it's important to gather, to continue to gather, to bear witness to Christ in a world that's so, the prevailing kind of feeling is just quit. Like, be a Christian, but don't be a part of the church, why it's vital vital to be continued to be the presence of Christ in the world, the visible presence. So here are the three things I want to look at from the passage. Straight out of 2 Corinthians. We gather as rejoicing captives. We gather to be the aroma, and we gather to serve the move, okay? And it's just verse by verse, okay? So first, we gather to be rejoicing captives. Verse 14, Paul says, thanks be to God, rejoice, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So, Paul's thanking God. That's good, right? We did some of that this morning already. And Jesus is having some sort of victory parade, and that's good, right? But right in the middle of it all, we're told that Jesus is leading us as his captives. Now, what's a captive, real quick, just to get on the same page? What's a captive? A prisoner. What else? Paul had been a captive before. What else? You're locked up, you're caged. What have you lost? Everything, your freedom, your rights, your humanity. That doesn't sound very good, <laughs> right? Why would I rejoice in that? So whenever the Bible says something that doesn't seem like good news to you or is perhaps confusing, there's a little r- rule thumb I once heard. In order to know what it means, you have to know what it meant, okay? It's a reminder to sort of dig a little deeper. And so what did it mean for Paul to say we are God's captives in Christ's triumphal procession? Thanks, God. Um, The Apostle Paul is writing in the first century to a Greek-speaking people in a place called Corinth, and to them, the verb translated in English as led in triumph is a very technical term. And it's a very specific thing that the Corinthians would have understood as a kind of special kind of parade, a triumphal procession, which is a time when after a military victory, the army, led by their general, would process through the packed streets of Rome. You can just picture this. Their captives in tow and chains very despondent, dispirited, as as a way of demonstrating the power and greatness and magnificence of their society. We're number one. We're the most powerful nation, empire on earth. Look what we can do to people, right? One scholar describes it this way, this procession. The triumphal procession was a lavish, expensive parade conducted in Rome to celebrate these great victories in battle, like St. Patrick's Day in Chicago, sitting in my eyes, Oslo, or Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras in New Orleans. These were major cultural and civic events. So that makes sense to us. Like, you've all been to a parade before. Who hasn't been to a parade before? Nobody. Like, you go, right? And so you can get your imagination around this procession. Now, here's the deal. Paul wants the Corinthians and those of us following Jesus in Seattle to understand that this parade is fundamentally different than any other parade you've ever witnessed, Okay. In other words, there's a very unique order of importance in this parade. So Paul's calling himself and all of us captives in the parade. So we're not just in the marching band, friends. <laughs> we're the prisoners. We're the detainees. We've lost our freedom. We're in chains. We, we are in bondage. Um, so the captives are the ones who were just defeated in battle, and now they're being paraded through the streets on their way to death in the Colosseum to be eaten by lions and gladiators. It's terrible. And Paul says, look, following Jesus doesn't promise you a life of ease or a prominent position at the front or honor or glory. None of that. So, sorry if you signed up thinking that was it. You're in the wrong community. You're in the wrong parade. Um, it involves suffering, humiliation, persecution. But here's the key. Because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, the enemy, the the, the devil, we can rejoice in that captivity. <laughs> The mystery of the gospel, listen to this, is that in losing, we win. In dying, we find life. In in being last, we are first. Uh, We gather every week, week in and week out, to be reminded of our position in the kingdom of God, not in the kingdom of the earth. It's a paradox. There's a paradox in God's kingdom. And you see, what Paul's doing is he's suggesting that he's challenging our spirituality and our Christianity and our church as we gather together. He's saying, you need to unlearn what you've learned. And been taught and passed down for generations, which is this sort of us versus them triumphalism, which is so endemic to our society as well as our churches. Um, in other words, this optimism, this military terminology that have been so long typical of the church, both Protestant and Catholic, evangelical mainline, it wasn't like it wasn't too long ago, was it, that we used words like Christian soldiers, onward Christian soldiers. We're part of God's army. Like, we were on a crusade for Jesus, right? That's military language. And, and we still use terms like that today. We advance the gospel. We have strategies and we have tactics to describe the work of God. I've been guilty of that. Um, and even when we don't use that terminology, our conduct kind of reveals the mentality. You go to work, you think in the context of clear-cut answers to every problem, and you apply that to your faith. You study the Bible, We practice what Japanese theologian Kosuke Kohama calls answer theology when we do that. Like, if we don't have answers, we're probably lacking faith. And see, Paul's challenging that here. We're not part of the army. We don't have all the answers. Christianity is not a bomb shelter against suffering and death. It's not that. We've been conquered, and the gospel of Jesus Christ invites us into the procession of his triumph, which is displayed through his death, the loss of his life, his apparent defeat— and an empty tomb. And we have an empty cross sitting here every Sunday if you didn't notice. And if, the, if that doesn't blow your mind, as an emblem of that story, I don't know what's going to blow your mind. Um, there's, there's a story of a large evangelistic campaign that took place somewhere with these billboards. This is in a state I won't mention because I don't want to shame anybody from this state. But let's just say it wasn't Washington State. Um, these billboards, you can imagine them, were on the freeways. And they were massive, right? Right? Can picture these and they said, guess what? They said, Jesus Christ is the answer in bold letters, right? Probably with service times down beneath. And the story goes that one day, a particular billboard on a very busy interstate had been tagged, presumably the night before, in large red letters. And guess what? It said, Yeah, but what's the question? What's the question? See, a God who provides all the answers becomes explicable and comprehensible but also ceases to be God, ceases to be the other, ceases to be infinite, ceases to be able to rise from the dead after dying on a cross. We've been tempted by this God. Let's be honest, friends. Like, to, be, to present the gospel in terms of answers instead of questions is sort of happy-ending religion. Like, you just believe in Jesus, it's going to be all good. In everything we undertake, our gospel, like our economy, or like our society is, is being defined in terms of success, yield, return on investment— limit the downside risk, maximize profit. We, I feel very terribly embarrassed when we cannot report tangible results, like when our attendance numbers aren't going up here, when miracles don't happen in our gatherings on Sunday, when the music doesn't move people to raise their hands, when preaching is average or less than average, (laughs) when there isn't evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. I feel terrible. Koyama, who I mentioned earlier, says it's natural for us to feel terrible because we want to have efficient control over situations like the one we find ourselves in right now. And uh, we don't like to be baffled by circumstances, do we? We don't want to be out, have things out of our control. We want our religion to be an integral part of society, like right alongside the schools and the other like, civic organizations. We want to have impact. And in wanting to do so, Koyama says we domesticate the gospel. Think about that. We domesticate it. We turn it into a resource, and resourceful people, he says, always know exactly what to do in difficult situations. They're not like Paul's captives who are resourceless, nothing but chains. Resourceful people put themselves at the head of the procession. Um, resourceful people like only see God where outward glory and heavenly power and imposing signs are manifested. And they make that happen. They know how. They can't stomach the fact that on the cross God died and in his death he invites us into the way of death. Uh, (laughs) So the missionary Albert Schweitzer once tells the story uh, of the ten years he taught catechism, which is like Sunday school. to these little boys in Strasbourg before the First World War, and if you know about the First World War you know it was horrific. And you can picture him up there like I am every Sunday, just trying to do his best to teach the gospel so that these boys would have the resources they need to face the world. So he does this for 10 years, and then after the horror of that war, some of those boys who survived came back to him now, young men, and said to him, they thanked him, because he'd shown them that the Christian faith doesn't need to explain everything. It doesn't explain everything. Instead, it empowers you to endure everything, and they'd endured. They had this awareness that enabled them to survive the trenches spiritually, whereas many of their friends were lost, went insane, completely lost their faith when they faced what was inexplicable. Like if you, I have never been in a situation like that, but if any of you have or watched those movies, it's inexplicable. Um, so which story are we telling here? Are we telling an explicable or inexplicable story? Which questions are we asking here? Are we comfortable enough with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mystery of it and the story of God and how he's working in our lives just to rejoice despite experiencing loss some of you have lost people this year can you rejoice in that some of you are very confused right now can you rejoice in that some of you are terribly broken mentally physically emotionally your children are too can you rejoice in that it's inexplicable why i don't know but god is still god this is what Paul means when he says later in Philippians that he learned to be content in any and every circumstance. What have we learned? <laughs> are we learning in our gathered life together, as God teaches us and shapes us as rejoicing captives, that, that we can still be part of God's story and rejoice? Those are some of the questions that God presents to us here through 2 Corinthians and why we gather. Here's the second thing we're gathered to be aroma, the aroma. Here's what Paul says, God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere for we're God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing to one word the aroma of death, the other aroma of life. So all of a sudden, Paul changes the metaphor. I love that he does this. Something he does this all the time. First we're captives, now we're we're aroma. So he and his laborers are in this parade and now there's this aroma wafting up through the crowds being spread by this incense bearer's that used to accompany this triumphal procession. And that's us. And the point here is that triumphal processions had a smell to them. So incense is, is being burned, and uh, it smells good. There's food cooking everywhere, because it's going to be a party. So you can imagine walking through the Piala Fair, right? And you smell elephant ears, and kettle corn, and corn dogs, and corn everything, and fried pickles. And it's like pleasing, I guess. <laughs> There's this aromatic, mouth-watering side to this whole affair, isn't it? Isn't there? You want to eat. And the key here is this fragrance has a sort of dual nature to it in this triumphal procession. It's doubly significant. It's a fragrance of the knowledge of God revealed and spread about everywhere. That's on one hand the fragrance that rises up to God for his glory, but on the other hand, has a decisive impact on every person who comes into touch with it. So, first, notice this: it's a fragrance that rises to God. We are, to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ. To God. That's the big point here. Now, what's that about? (laughs) See, Paul's original audience um, knew this idea of fragrance and incense incense wouldn't have had a distinct connection, would have had a distinct distinct connection to the idea of worship, the concept of worship, what we're doing. Um, And in particular, this Old Testament sacrificial system So Paul's calling to mind these Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Covenant, which simply went like this. Before Jesus died for the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, the sins of everyone, for every bit of sadness, for every bit of evil, every bit of wrong, the way to say sorry and the way to attempt to get right with God, to make right for that wrong, was to find your best animal, not like a pet, if you're a young person here. It's like a goat or a sheep, and you kill it, you come to church and you offer it to God, okay? And then they roast it, and the smell of that animal roasting would be to God an aroma, a sacrificial offering. You've given something very important, which would be a guarantee of God's forgiveness on your life, right? That's what Old Testament, Old Testament teaches. And what Paul's saying is that here in the, in the life and death of Jesus, his life was a sacrificial offering to God. God smells Jesus' death and declares there's no more need for sacrifice, Jesus is the one and true sacrifice. Hebrews talks about this. In the first covenant, every day was, there were priests officiating in the, in the temple, serving, offering the same old sacrifices every day. And they never took away sin ultimately. But after Jesus stepped in, Hebrews says, his one sacrifice for the sins of all time on the cross, his ability to sit down at the right hand of God, because he did that, it's, a, it's one perfect offering for all people for all time. And that's, there's forgiveness available to us because of Jesus. 2,000 years ago on a cross. Isn't that, I mean, that's good news. Like, you don't have to live with the guilt and the shame of your life. You don't have to, like, bear the burden of the world on your shoulders. You can read your newsfeed. That's great. But you can give that to God because God covered it on the cross. No matter what. Um, And so then Hebrews says, goes on in Hebrews 10, says, we can, because of that, draw near to God with hearts full of faith and hold strong to our confession of hope. We don't ever need to waver. Amen? That's why we gather. Now, what's even more important about the sacrifice that Paul envisions is the sacrifice to God among men and women. And so what Paul is saying is that those, that those whom Jesus' life and ministry have touched, he's touched your life and impacted you and changed your perspective on things, will become a fragrance, so to speak, a smell And that smell, depending on the hearts of those among whom you live and work, depending on their openness and readiness and teachability, uh, that smell will be an awareness of either their mortality or their deliverance. In other words, the invitation for us today is just to smell like Jesus and let him do the rest. Um, And ironically, to smell like Jesus means to smell like something died. Uh, Jesus invites us to embrace death, our death, his death. To die before you die, as Richard Rohr says. It's like Paul prays in Philippians 3, he wants to so identify with Christ's death that he can participate in it. Have you ever prayed that? God, I want to identify with your death so much that I get to participate in it. I want to die. I want to die before I die. That's just crazy talk. Like, our world rejects death. We do everything in our power to prolong life. We're doing that And, and prevent death. We don't suffer well as a society At least we're not raised to know how to suffer. And for many, that comes much later in life, after much, 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 much loss. You suffer, you suffer, you suffer. And then you're like, fine, God, annihilate me. Right? That's what many people say. And so the question for us today is this. What do you need to let die now? How might you die before you die? Um, And then allow Christ to live through you as a fragrance, expressing himself, his death, through your life. Maybe it's a death to your anger that's stealing your joy. Maybe it's a death to your selfishness. Maybe it's a death to feeling that you always need to be right. I know that's a problem for me. Or be in control. Maybe it's expectations of yourself. Maybe it's the death in relationships. This realizing that that relationship is probably maybe not going to reconcile. Maybe it's a death to your busyness. (laughs) Because in being busy, you don't have time for the things that matter most, like your kids or your spouse or your own body. There are so many deaths in life. Where do you need to die today? Today. How much you die before you die? And here's the key in this section. As you let those things die, they become fragrance. Not only in this space, but in the world. To God among men and women. That's what worship is about. It's saying, God, not my life, your life. Not my will, your will. Not my plans, your plans. Not my church, your church. That's sacrifice. And the major reason we gather is to be reminded that it's okay to die here. It's okay to die before you die. You're not going to be annihilated. God does not annihilate us. He won't annihilate you. He's not not about that. He's about life and life to the full. And that means we have to die to some things to experience that. Um, And that fragrance will rise among men and women everywhere. Everywhere. That's the promise here. People are going to smell it. And to some, that's going to give them life. They are going to see death in your life, and they're going to be affirmed by that. They're going to say, wow, I'm so encouraged and move toward Christ because of your humility, your ability to accept the death of your dad, your ability to take the demotion at work, your ability to just be humble enough to not say anything when you're attacked, your ability to just be Christ. They can die. And to others, they may not be ready for that. They just may not be ready for that. Um, And that's okay, too. It's not about you. You don't have to convince anybody of anything. You can let Christ do the work. He's the fragrance. There's a kind of sacrificial living that brings life to other people, and we're being invited by God into that posture that courageously embraces the death of Jesus, knowing that there is only life for those in Christ at the end of the road. So the question is this again. What in your life needs to die today? What needs to die? What can you let go of? What can you trust God with. Think about that. Here's the last thing I want to say. We gather to serve the move. And this wasn't explicitly in the this, this passage. It's in verse 17. But notice the language of the whole thing. Paul says, thanks be to God that God leads us. That God uses us. And then he says there at the end, that we're the aroma to God and then we're sent to From God. We're sent by God. So do you see it? Our gathering together is ultimately, as we embrace the death of Jesus and our own daily call to die and and rejoice in that calling, like we just rejoice, it's okay. We receive the power of God to move into the lives of other people. We're empowered by Christ. Tim Keller once put it this way He said that all the Bible is governed by a single principle, and this, this is it. God never calls you in just to bless you without sending you out to other people. God never calls you in without sending you out. He never blesses anyone unless you're to be a blessing. Abraham, in Genesis 12, hey, Abraham, come on in. I'm going to tell you about myself. I'm going to tell you about your future. You're going to be the father of all nations. Now, guess what? Go bless other people, Abraham. Get out of here. Moses, come on in, Moses. I'm going to show you my backside. (laughs) You know, take off, your, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. I'm going to give you some, some teaching. What does he say then? Get out of here. <laughs> Go to Pharaoh. Confront powers and principalities. Isaiah, come on in, Isaiah. I got, a, I got a coal from my altar that's going to forgive your sin. And I'm going to heal you of your guilt and your shame. And I'm going to heal the nation of God through you. And then he says, who's going to go for me? And what does Isaiah say, Isaiah 6? Here I am, Lord. Me, send me. Um, It's a principle. God never calls you in except to send you out. God's intention in blessing your life, blessing our church, is that we would be a blessing to other people. All which means this, that as we gather, we're invited to make ourselves available to God. Availability, recognizing that God has us here. He's called each and every one of you here this morning. You might have come here because... That's what you always do. You might have come here because you just hope you'd see a few people that make you feel like you don't, you're not so alone all the time. Who knows? He's called us with a purpose. You're here for God, and God wants to use you, send you, shape you, use your life, your story to shape other people. Um, this community, the lives of us gathered to influence, impact, I just use that word, right? This city. And that means availability. Are you available to God? Um, to be used by God in this place for others. Are you saying, like I say, hey, Lord, I'm right here. Use me, send me, bless through me. That's the real reason, I'll go back to the beginning, our, for our move to two this fall. Like, we desire to make ourselves available to God for others. Every person, the youngest baby to the oldest adult, and everyone in between, to God for others, but to God. God, how might you use me to have an impact here? Um, to, you bless me, how might I be a blessing? And, th- and this isn't something that's revealed to a select few, like the 20 or 30% of people that typically lead in the church, which is true of our church too, by the way. Um, or those who have good teaching gifts, so they're good with kids. Or those who have been here long enough to have a sense of what, where the bathrooms are and what you say and what you don't say and what the right theology is. It's not reserved for that. It's for us all. Henry Nouwen once put it this way, very fine point on. He says, no Christian is a Christian without being a minister. You can't be a Christian without being a minister. As Jesus says, you are all sent ones. And, and though there are multiple, multiple ways to minister, and you, many of you minister through your workplaces and your vocations— all of them says now and have the same basis and that's to lay down your life for your friends or for others. Some are going to say, hey, I'm in a season of rest. I need, I need to rest. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time, like 20, 30 years. <laughs> or I was wounded by the church. I'm new, I'm, you know, you talk about Henry Rice, Jack. That's me, my story. Um, some are going to say, I'm still new here. I'm just checking this place out. Caught you on the wrong Sunday. Uh, or I burned out I've been going too hard. My life is crazy. You saw my kids. And I hear you. I want to invite you to rest, heal, consider, recover, all those things. But know this, that typically speaking, most people experience the most spiritual transformation, not when they're being discipled, but when they start discipling. That's why you're blessed to be a blessing. Because that's, trans- that's where the rubber meets the road. Transformation happens. That's why God's called us in to bless others. Because more than anything, God desires your transformation. God desires to use you to change the lives of others so that you might experience change. Does this make sense? And so whatever season you're in, would you put yourself in a posture of availability? Just simply say to God, here I am. I don't know what that means for you, but here I am. Holy Spirit, speak. See, friends, we're entering this season now as a church where the only barrier to accomplishing all that God's calling us to as a church is literally just a room full of people saying, here I am. I'm available, God. God, I'm available. It's going to take courage. It's going to take faith. It's going to take energy. It won't be easy. <laughs> but if God's in it, as Jesus says, nothing can stand against the movement of God. Nothing. Um, so will we make ourselves available? That's all I'm asking this morning. So as we do that, I kind of invited all invite the worship team back up. I invited us to consider three, three things this morning. I'll just remind you. How might you rejoice right now in your sense of captivity? (laughs) Where can you rejoice, even though things are not going well? Because you know the end of the story. What might you need to die to right now and just bring before God? And say, God, this is really too much for me. And then how might you make yourselves available to the Spirit of God? That's work for here, that's work for home, that's work for your life. <laughs> and we're not gonna try and answer that work today. So I'm gonna invite us now as I pray to put ourselves in a posture of availability. If you put your hands up on your, on your lap, you can close your eyes or keep them open, whatever. I'm not gonna ask anyone to raise their, hand, raise their hand, but I'd love for all of us just to open our hands up as we're just expressing to God, I'm available to you, God. Not to this church, I wanna get that right, to God, okay? to God, for others. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the life, the death, the resurrection, the hope that we find in the story of Jesus. We think that his story, um, as we put our faith in him, has become our story that nothing, nothing can ultimately conquer us and that we can enter into the moments of our life that are hard. We can enter into the questions that we're asking. We can enter into the fears with faith, which doesn't mean to have all the answers, but just to walk in knowing that he's with us in it. So we do, God, put our faith in you. And we ask you, Spirit, now as we continue to worship and close our morning, that you would speak to us each where we're at and how you'd want to speak to us, whether it's about our involvement here in this church, our involvement in our neighborhood, our involvement in certain relationships, our involvement in our workplace, wherever it is, God. You've called us in to shape us and then send us out to be a blessing. Would Bethany Northeast be just that today and this week? We pray this uh, through Christ and by the Spirit. And all people said, amen.